This episode is brought to you by the Christian Culture Builders Group on Facebook and MeWe. Believers in Jesus optimistically working to create great commission hubs for the propagation of the gospel, the furthering of Christ's kingdom, and the emergence of robust, fruitful Christian culture. We work through the three spheres of authority, the family, the church, and the state, and the pillars of influence in society to make it happen. Check out the Christian Culture Builders Group on Facebook or MeWe today. Quick, what are you doing to disciple your kids? Catechids can help. Catechids is a little book with 100 simple questions and answers to help parents teach their young children the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, to lead them to faith in Jesus, and equip them to walk in the Spirit every day and love God. I wrote Catechids for my own kids, and they love it. It's become a tool that's been blessing Christian families and churches far and wide. Get Catechids on Amazon today or by going to thethink.institute. There. How long are you going to grow that up for? I don't know. I don't know. I'm thinking for a while. I'm yeah? thinking it's winter, you know? I got I got some work to do on it. And yeah. It's good, man. Listen, I think I think that if you can grow a beard, I think you, you've got a moral obligation. I think that the case could be made in this day and age. I'm great. Let me, let me put it this way. In this day and age, with all of its twisted perspectives on masculinity, femininity, I think that i could make a, a case a moral case that a man who can grow a beard ought to grow a beard i That's, i'm gonna I, say that i think john calvin would agree with you john calvin john did you ever see john knox and john calvin in the same room by the way you can't tell them apart you really you, the you other can't. day i was looking at i was looking at some drawing and i thought i thought it was calvin and it was knox i was yeah. wrong they're very similar similar in their um similar in their their ethos too although knox was uh firebrand man well, that's because Knox looked up to Calvin. Knox would tra- Knox saw himself as one of uh, it, Knox saw Calvin as the greatest, and he saw himself as never in the same league as Calvin, and always kind of someone just trying to learn from him. Calvin put Knox in his place a handful of times. Actually, it was pretty. It was a good relationship. Did he really? Calvin did. Yeah, because Knox was having all this trouble, and he was causing, and he he put his foot in his mouth a handful of times, and had to go back and kind of apologize for it because he he got a little too saucy with uh, the Queen. <laughs> oh, was it was it Knox that wrote um, the blast of the the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women? That was Knox. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you one thing about Knox: he was a dangerous man. He was a dangerous man. Those were a handful of dangerous men in those days. It's oh. interesting how those dangerous men shaped the entire world for Christianity, isn't it? You're you're exactly right, man. And and uh, that's what we're talking about today: is how do we how and why should Christians become more dangerous? Ooh, that just so, sounds, that sounds like it's a dangerous topic, Joel. It sounds like one that uh, probably is not going to get covered in Christianity Today or, uh, or Relevant Magazine. A oh. magazine, a magazine for Christians who desire relevance above all things. But I, you shouldn't, know what? I shouldn't rip on them. This, this is an important topic. Uh, and it, we came across it because uh, we came across a, a, a video in the most unlikely of places uh, from our good friend, uh, dear, close, personal, just kidding, uh, man, Jordan Peterson. I wish. And, uh, Jordan Peterson's a fascinating figure. Joel, you've done a lot of work uh, on another show of yours yeah. um, on Jordan Peterson. Give, us, give our listeners a little background on who Peterson is, what his shtick is, and kind of what, what's happening with him right now. 
Yeah, Jordan Peterson recently reemerged back into the public sphere. He was gone for a number of months, um, probably close to a year, seeking treatment for uh, an addiction that uh, and and uh, problems that he was having due to um, uh, it was uh, it was a chemical um, addiction that he had to some medication that he was taking for anxiety and. The re so he recently made his reemergence into the public sphere, and it was accompanied by much fanfare and much celebration, as well as the announcement of a new book. And the reason why, if you've heard about Jordan Peterson recently, the reason why people made such a hullabaloo and a brouhaha about, about him coming back is because of the impact that this man has had over the last three years or so, three or four years, in the realm of public discourse. So him coming back is a big deal. And the reason why is because what he did before he left. Now, he's got a book out called 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. And that, that book is the, uh, the calcification. No, no, no. The, um, that, that book is the uh, systematization of much of his thinking and, um, Peterson is, he was called by the New York Times, the most important public intellectual of our time. That was in 2018. Because Peterson is much like Calvin or Knox, although not coming from the same theological framework, a dangerous man in his own right. And he's dangerous because his approach to the realm of public discourse has not been a, a sycophantic one. It has not been one where he follows the popular accepted line of thinking. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's a man who knows how to say no and how to mean it. We're going to talk about that today. And he is a, a thinker who is not afraid of dangerous ideas and not afraid of losing his cherished position in academia due to saying the wrong thing. And it all goes back to some decisions that he made a couple of years ago, a few years ago, when the Canadian government told him he was going to be required to call self-professing transgender students by their preferred, not names, but pronouns. So right. what I've done here, Rafe, is I've I've worked backward from who Peterson is today to how he arose to prominence in the first place back uh, several years ago. And so Peterson is exactly the kind of guy you, you want to interact with if you're going to talk about Christians becoming more dangerous, especially for, for, for us who deal in the realm of worldview. And here's why he's the best person, one of the best people that we could uh, be interacting with. One, because he's not a Christian. Now, that might seem kind of crazy to you, but he's not a Christian, which gives us a chance to sharpen our worldview knives a little bit, Rafe, mm -hmm. um, and and to do a little bit of ideological um, honing uh, without the temptation to agree with everything that he says. That's one. Right. Two, because he is an intellectual in his own right, the man is is very intelligent, uh, so he's, he's, he's no schlub. He's not just some, you know, internet... Uh, pontificator and then three because of the because of his adversarial relationship with the world and as a non-christian i would put him in the category of of a worldling but he's in he's in opposition to much of the world so right. he's this he's just this for those who are joining right world. now i see i see some folks jumping on where joel is setting up jordan peterson and yes. who jordan peterson is and what his background is just for those who jumped on a little late so keep going yeah, yeah. Joel. 
No, that's good. So we're gonna we're gonna watch this video, Rafe, that you sent over to me, which um, which is simply titled "The Best Men I Know Are Dangerous." Mm -hmm. Building a strong character, Jordan Peterson motivation, and it's it's one of these motivation videos. It's got some some uh, sort of inspiring music behind it. Um, what I want to do, what I would like us to do, is to play the video and then pause it at intervals and interact with it and address the points that he's making from a biblical perspective. Again, we have no obligation to agree with Jordan Peterson here. Right. And, and, and you know, on the flip side, nor, nor are we um, trying to curry favor with the world by using one of their own prophets, if you will. Instead, what we want to do is we want to, we want to interact with these ideas, which are, are powerful and popular and, um, and, and address them from a biblical perspective to say, Hey, is there something we can glean as followers of Jesus? And can this actually even help us see our Lord and his teachings and his example in a new light? Yeah. Yeah. And, and even before we get in here and we're talking about being dangerous, we're, we're talking about even we're going to have to define what that word means. And maybe yeah. we'll let Jordan Peterson, since he uses it, define his own term. Yeah. But this is a theme. I just want to set this up for us today. This is a theme that I think is probably one of the most critical themes uh, that the church can be speaking about today. Uh, and it's the ability to believe your convictions enough to be uh, accused of wrongdoing because you stand on your convictions. Ah, yeah. And, and that, that Jordan Peterson has exemplified that in the secular world very well. And, and I hope what we take out of this today uh, is, is, uh, is a willingness to understand that faith, belief in Jesus has cost people over the centuries a lot because they stand on the word of God. They believe it. They hold the conviction so near and dear that that it's literally a dangerous thing to proclaim the truth of Christ is to live in a dangerous space. Yeah. And, I think, and what I want to have formed in here today is a boldness, a zeal and courage to stand on the word of God and proclaim it to a watching world. So that's kind of, you know, as we're having this conversation, interacting with Jordan Peterson, where I want to get us to and the underlying uh, kind of framework I'm working off of today. I love, you know, no, no, I'll save that for a little bit later. So Joel, why don't, why don't you take us away with a little bit of the uh, a video to get us kicked off here? Good, good, good. Okay, so here we go. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pull up this video again. It's called "The Best Men I Know Are Dangerous." It's a motivation video, but it's um, it's uh, it's very relevant to what we're talking about here today. So here it is. Um, what I'm gonna do, Rafe, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull this up on. Um, I'm gonna watch it in 1.5 speed just to give us a chance. Can you see and hear that? Yeah. Okay. I had no idea you could do 1.5 speed on YouTube. I'll do, I'll do 1.25. You're just a domesticated house cat or, or a lap dog. You have to be, you have to push beyond the persona. And that's what the integration of the shadow does from the union perspective. It's like to pull. Uh oh. Joel, go at one speed. 1.25 is going to kill me. That's being. Okay. All right. Hold on. Hold on. You know what? We're getting um, out of you. Pull I think I have too many tabs to open here. Allow that to okay. We're trying to do too much. You know why? Because I've got YouTube your... pulled up. I've got Facebook pulled up. Listen, if you're watching on Facebook right now uh, and you want to make a comment, do me a favor. Go on over to the Think Institute page. Watch it from there so we can see your comments because I've got to close out my other, my other Facebook tabs. So what we're going to do is we're going to restart this now. I'll play it in regular speed 
and yes, you can absolutely watch videos in uh, in fast forward, which is very nice. Okay, Rafe, you ready? I'm ready. We're gonna try this again. If you only know how to behave, you're just a domesticated house cat or or a lap dog. You have to be. You have to push beyond the persona, and that's what the integration of the shadow. Oh, this is going to kill me. Perspective. It's like to pull that. Really? Monster that's been edited. All right. Wait, well, I don't know about this. Out of you. To pull that back in and to allow that to reveal itself within your, within your increasingly sophisticated way of being. And then you're not just a persona. You can't escape from your persona unless you can say no. Like here's an, here's an example from popular culture. And you can um, pause it there. In the Harry yeah. Potter series. Good. Harry Potter's obviously okay. So let's talk about it. Well, uh, he sets the framework up there pretty well for us, and he, he basically says, you know, if, if your if your goal is to be an obedient citizen, you're nothing more than a lapdog. And I, I think yeah. that there's truth. I want to look at this from a biblical perspective. There's truth and there's not truth in there. Okay. Um, and so what what is true? Well, what is true is that our aim is to be obedient, not to government. Our aim is to be obedient to Christ. The Christian's aim is to live in total obedience to Christ. Um, I, I don't think I'd use the language that makes you a lapdog to Christ. I think that makes you a ambassador for christ that makes you a warrior for christ these are this, this is biblical language nowhere well, to be yeah yeah it, no th no good point rafe if we're going to talk about biblical concepts let's use biblical terms right Jesus himself says i no longer call you slaves i call you friends right now paul does call himself a slave to christ and he's honored to call himself that but we are not treated as pets or property of christ we are loyal, faithful bond slaves, and we are also friends. Right. So, so now what Peterson's saying though is if you can't say no to man, you're actually debasing yourself to lower than the level of a man, lower than the level of what it means to be human. There's a there's a dehumanization that comes from refusing or or neglecting to ever say no to man. You're you're subordinating yourself. Um and subjugating yourself in a way that's actually dehumanizing. The opposite is true. If you say, if you, if you say, I will always say yes to Christ as my Lord, that's actually rehumanizing. That's actually restoring uh, the way we are created. So, so I mean, Peterson might not say that, obviously, but but I want to put a I want to make sure we're viewing this through a theological lens. But what can we affirm from what Peter just said? Well, biblically, Galatians 1:10. If I were tr still trying to please man, yeah, I would not be a servant of Christ. The, and this is where Christians, our modern Christianity, has gotten so soft and weak. And I've heard other pastors use terms like neutered. Uh, we have lost the convictional courage, which was at the heart of Christianity, to stand in opposition to unbiblical claims of truth within the world. And what we've done over the last, especially in Western Christianity over the last half century, is we have essentially hunkered into our safe places. We have done our best to be a, to define Christianity as Mr. Nice Guy. It's the Ned Flanders approach to Christianity. Now, 
now that's a comical approach to it, but in real life, it's kind of what we've done. We've got our big comfy churches with our big comfy seats, and we've forgotten not only the mission that Christ has called us to, but the convictions that we are supposed to stand on and what the cost of holding those convictions are. Jesus told us to count the cost. He told us to pick up our cross and follow him. This is language of a person who's so sold out for Christ that they're marching to their death on his behalf. That's violent language. It's violent language. And, and, and Christianity, as soon as it loses its violent edge, violence not in the sense of harming people intentionally for the sake of harming them, but violent in the sense of Christianity is to disrupt the social norms of secular society. And when it fails to disrupt, it is, is exactly what Jordan Peterson is describing. We just play government, lot, uh, not government, we just play lapdog to society, and we try to be this nice tail between our legs, don't, yeah. don't stir the waters. You almost and said I, lockdown there, didn't you? I've got a book in front of me, I'm going to quote later on, one of, uh, one of our uh, guys we like to read, Doug Wilson, gets quoted quite a bit on this show. But, uh, and one of the things Doug Wilson, he, he had, a, he had a, a video out a couple of weeks ago saying, you know, a, a pastor's job is not to be a fireman, it's to be an arsonist. I don't know <laughs> And it's of him sitting on a couch he lit on fire. And I love that. And what's his point? His point is Christianity by default is a disrupting religion. It, it steps mm -hmm. into uh, the, uh, the worldviews around, and it steps in and it declares them to be false and replaces it with a true statement. And in its nature, it becomes, in a sense, a violent, uh, it, it's full of danger in that sense. And I love that that overlaps with what Peterson is saying here. Joel, yeah. your thoughts. Where are you going with this? No, that's good. Let, let's let's keep this going because, um, well, I, he's going to develop a point. And he's going to use an example from Harry Potter. At the end of that example, I want to pause. And I want to use a biblical example. All right, go. Okay. All right, here we go. Obviously, the hero of the story. And he's touched by malevolence, right? The only reason he can stand up against evil is because there's some evil in him that, that he's incorporated, essentially. Well, and that's exactly right. The, the persona... If you're a persona, then you're an obedient citizen. But the problem with being an obedient citizen is that if the society tells you to march the Jews off to the death camp, for example, or the Hong Kong protesters, then that's what you'll do. And it doesn't, it isn't like society or to Chinese all of a sudden camps that are taking place right now. Of atrocity. That isn't how it works. It's like you're, you're obedient citizen and then you're asked to violate your conscience a little bit. Yeah. And you, you have to because you don't have anything other than that persona. And so and that's obedience. And so a little more obedience is demanded. You say, okay, well, and then you're a little bent right? because the society is becoming a little bent. And then you're a little weaker. And then they, you're asked to violate your conscience a little bit more. And you think, well, there's a little less of me and the pressure's on a little more. And I could have said no before, but I didn't. So you say yes again. Then you say yes again. And then and then you have a society where one third of the population is informing on the other two thirds. It's hell. It's like, well, so how do you say no? Well, that's the shadow. It's like, and that's, see, the reason that the video I did go, about Bill C-16 and it's All right, let's pause speech. here. Okay, go. No, I'm gonna, I, I went first last time. I got plenty to say, but go, go ahead before I go. Right. Uh, I, I'll take the whole time talking if you let me go first. All right, all right. So, so I want to... Um, I, I think it's interesting. He's talking about Harry Potter here. Jordan Peterson, one of, one of his strengths is the way that he analyzes pop culture and, 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 uh, 
makes his points more relevant by appealing to stories in pop culture. He does this with Disney movies. He does this um, with fairy tales, and which a lot of Disney movies are based on fairy tales. Um, you know, the old fables, things like that. Yeah. And I, I like that he uses Harry Potter. I'm not, a, I'm not a Harry Potter fan, but I like that he uses Harry Potter because that's going to make it much more relevant to his audience of, you, you got to think a lot of Jordan Peterson's audience is young men in their twenties. They grew up on Harry Potter, whether the movies or the books. So he's making it relevant. I want to, I want to appeal to another reference because we're trying to look at things through the biblical lens, through the biblical worldview, which by the way, did you see what I'm drinking out of today? Look at this. <laughs> Look at this. I've seen those before. This is a. It's been a while since I've seen one of those. It's been yeah. a while since I've been enough into photography to own one of those myself. Did you used to own one? Oh, I used to be into photography. I didn't have one of those. Yeah, yeah. Well, my um, I got this at a white elephant gift last night. This is a gift exchange. This is a um, if for those who are listening later on the audio podcast, or if you have the the video turned off right now, this is a um, it looks like a camera lens. That's uh, it's a coffee mug shaped like a camera lens. Um, so. The the example I want to pull out is uh, first I want to pull out a, a proverb, and then I want to pull out a biblical example. The proverb, a narrative example, is Proverbs twenty four eleven. One of my absolute all time favorite proverbs. Here's what it says. If well, actually, let's start with verse ten. If you faint in the day of distress, how small is your strength? Rescue those being led away to death and restrain those stumbling toward the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know about this, does not he who weighs hearts consider it? Does not the one who guards your life know? Will he not repay a man according to his deeds? Now, there's a Bibli now that proverb was written by King, Solomon's, uh, King Solomon, which is King David's son. Now, Solomon would have known enough about David, his dad's life, I think about this sometimes when I read Proverbs and when I read, I've been reading through first and second Samuel with my kids and then on my own, in my own Bible reading plan. And I, I think often about how Solomon would have been able to observe his dad to whatever degree and to gain godly wisdom from him because David was a wise man. But there's this particular story, Rafe, of David exemplifying that principle. And you find it in first Samuel 23. And it's the rescue of the city of Kilah. Mm. And uh, this is when um, Israel was plagued by oppression from the the people known as the Philistines. The Philistines, David had a love-hate relationship with the Philistines throughout the course of his life. His first major military victory was against Saul, uh, uh, Goliath. And this is when Saul was king and David killed Goliath, who was a Philistine giant. Later on, when King Saul turned on David, David went and found refuge among the Philistines. But but then later on, David turned adversarial against the Philistines as well. Look, David is not the kind of guy. What's that? And he tricked him. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Very shrewd uh, what David did. But but here you've got in 1 Samuel 23, this is at a time when someone had come to David and they'd, they'd announced to him. They said, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kyla and are robbing their threshing floors. The threshing floor is where you would go to thresh your wheat. And basically what the Philistines appeared to have been doing was they would go and while the, after the Israelites had done the hard work of growing the grain, harvesting the grain, 
and separating the wheat from the chaff so that they could take the good grain into their storehouses, the Philistines are coming down and uh, uh, stealing the product of the Israelites' labor. It was um, it was pretty devious, man. So David hears about this, and what it, what he does is he goes. It says in verse two, it says, "Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines?" And the Lord said to David, "Go and attack the Philistines and save." Kilah. Mm. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Kilah against the armies of the Philistines? And David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Kilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Kilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kyla. David's first reaction, Rafe, when David hears what's going on with his countrymen, his first reaction is, we got to do something about this. I can't sit idly by. Now look, it doesn't say the Philistines were killing the men of Kyla. It doesn't say they were raping their women or carrying off their children. It says that they were taking away their grain. And, and, and so what is this? They're taking away their livelihood. They're taking away the product of their labor. And, uh, if someone wanted to encourage David to be safe here, they could have said, look, David, it's just grain, man. You can always grow it back. Better to be a peacemaker. Right. Better to not rock the boat. And that's kind of what David's men say to him. So David's response is he goes to seek the Lord. The Lord says, go. His men say, no. David goes to the Lord again. And the Lord says, go. David's impulse is to be a dangerous man. Oh, man. It's, it's to go it- and wage war. It's all through scripture. Look, you go, let's just start going through some stuff right here. God's people, God's people are always called to stand on the convictions that their God is the one true God in among all gods that have ever been created and to then take enemy territory as a result. Think of this, right? Uh, Abraham, when his son, when uh, not his son, his nephew, Lot is kidnapped and all their possessions. What does he do? He doesn't waste a minute. He, he goes after them. He, he gets his men and he goes and he basically hunts down kings and armies and rescues his. Every time I read that story, it, you know, you wonder why Melchizedek after that in Genesis comes and uh, there's that whole encounter with Abraham, which is picked up in the New Testament. That was an epic thing that Abraham did. Kings and armies kidnapped his his nephew and he picked up and went after them yeah. you've got david you've, you've got the the spies what about joshua chapter one a chapter that i had read at my wedding i've joked about that yeah. before i have no idea why i did this what does it say be strong and courageous he's over and over be strong and courageous when the apostles are in acts chapter two or four in acts four when they're praying what does it say they're praying for they're they're, they're praying for boldness because they're they're fearing arrest and they pray for boldness. There is a uh, there is a tenacity and zeal for the Lord, which Christians have always been marked by when God gets a hold of you. And what will happen, and what what I think Jordan Peterson is getting after here, that, that there's some overlap here. If he if he angled it towards the right direction, there's things to be passionate about, there's things to get upset about. A great example of this is Jesus, right? Jesus knew, and we'll get to this clip from Peterson in a little bit, Jesus knew when to hold his tongue because he was strong in the Lord and to let a debate go 
and and not feel like he had to win every nuance of it. And he also knew when to flip tables. When, when it was a matter of the honor of the Lord being tarnished by petty, cheap salesmen turning the, the temple of the Lord into a, a, a way to get a penny and, and steal people, yeah. he didn't hold his tongue. It, and he didn't just ask politely that they stop. He flipped tables and made a court. <laughs> I mean, he, yeah. he was wild on them. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. The church, is, the church has become very good at playing silent in cultural issues, not because of a strong courage, right. but because of a fear right. that if they speak up, they'll be persecuted. And in the process of allowing that fear to dominate us and control us, we have completely forgotten what it means to make a, a cord and, and to flip tables over. Yeah. And, and the result of that is a very cowardly church and yeah. a church that is losing steam and not losing steam, but, but losing ground. And, right. and the church is called, and Joel, we say this all the time, the church is called to storm the gates of hell. Right, you you uh, on this rock. I, I on this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Right. The idea there is not that the gates of hell are charging you, and you and your strength they won't it, it won't knock you over. Gates don't advance. Gates don't advance. The idea is is that as you as you beat on the gates of hell as an army, the church militant, as the reformers called it, talking about yeah. Knox and Calvin, as you beat on those gates, they won't stand. Why? Because all authority has been given to Jesus on heaven and on earth, and he's equipped you as his ambassador to go out. So is Jordan Peterson correct? There is a very strong line of biblical thinking which must be recovered in, what, in the church of what Jordan Peterson is saying. What I think he is missing and I, is that it's angled in the wrong direction. You can have all the zeal in the world, and if it's not angled and bound by the word of God, then it's a danger to you and everyone else around you. But if that zeal and courage and conviction is guarded by the word of God, shaped by God, then you honor God and you become a true warrior in the name of Christ. Yeah, yeah, that's good. It's, it's um, well, uh, Proverbs 19.2 says, desire without knowledge uh, is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. So you can be zealous in the wrong way. You can, you can, uh, <laughs> one of my old professors, D.A. Carson, um, he was talking about another theologian. He, actually, he was talking about uh, uh, a guy he called Tom Wright, which we all know as N.T. Wright. And he said N.T. Wright has the ability, uh, the propensity to um, jump up onto his horse and valiantly ride off in all directions. <laughs> Well, you know, a, a similar uh, illustration that I've used before, it's kind of like when you become a Christian, you get given a sword. The sword is the word of God. And, and now you're on a battlefield. I mean, like it or not, Christian, you're on a battlefield and you're being attacked. I mean, that's the, that's the end of the story. And that's if right. you're not attacking back and you're not defending properly, you are getting crushed. Yeah. Okay. So here you are, you've got a sword, you're standing on a battlefield. When you first get that sword, your, your tendency is just going to start to swing that thing around with no discipline whatsoever. And what happens is you hurt yourself and you hurt other people around you, particularly those in your church. And that's why you got to be trained to carry the word of God correctly so that you can wield the sword in the appropriate way, which we're supposed to do. Ephesians chapter six. Yeah, that's good. All right, let's keep going. Ready? Yeah. Okay. Provisions went viral was because I said, no, I didn't say it casually. What I meant was, there isn't anything that you can do to me that I can imagine 
that will force me to utter the words that you want me to utter. Nothing. And I meant it. And when I made the video, I think people could actually tell that I meant it. And so I took this abstract problem and made it concrete. I said, no, that's not happening. And so, and that's part of the incorporation of the shadow. But in this regard, the shadow is actually benevolent, not malevolent. Well, once it's incorporated, yeah, yeah. well, that's the thing. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know what to make of that in its entirety, because it, it sort of means that if you, it means something like, because one of the old metaphysical problems is why would God allow evil into the world? I think, well, yeah. maybe God didn't allow evil into the world. Maybe God allowed the possibility. And this is an area we didn't necessarily touch on uh, from what Peterson said before, and I want to clarify it. Peterson used Harry Potter to make an illustration of what he was trying to say. He was, What Peterson's trying to say is for you to have courage and this danger that he's referring to, you have to have a bit of evil in you. And what I'll say later on is that, and that's what Harry Potter is, right? Harry Potter has been t touched. He's got that scar uh, yeah. that reminds him that there's a bit of evil inside of him, and that's what makes him so dangerous. Right. I disagree with him. Go. So it's not that the Christian is not dangerous because he has a bit of evil in him. Right. It's not that he, he danced with the devil and now he's got a bit of the devil in him and he knows how to play the devil's game. It's that he's been united with God through Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. and, and, and his union with Christ makes him far more dangerous to the devil's plans than knowing the devil ever possibly could. Your union with Christ from a Christian view and a Christian vision and understanding of the word of God, unites you with God, fills you with the Holy Spirit, equips you with every spiritual gift you will need to perfectly glorify God in your life. That is a thousand times more dangerous to the enemies of God than knowing, than, than having walked in sin previously in your life. What does the Bible say about Jesus? It says he was tempted in every way the same as we are, yet without sin. Uh, scripture also says about Jesus that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. And I'm going to put this, I put this on the screen, but to kind of distill what you were saying, Rafe, there is nothing more dangerous to evil than goodness. If we compromise and we absorb a little bit of evil and we say, and we take Peterson's maxim here and we say, okay, well, well, we, uh, I guess I need to be touched by evil. I need to absorb a little bit of evil. And, and no, look, you, evil does not turn from malevolent to benevolent. The way that we, we go from malevolence to benevolence is through, is through the same process, uh, that Jesus used to eradicate sin's control in our life. And that's this death burial and resurrection it's there is we're not alchemists we don't turn lead into gold it's good okay we take evil we kill it we crucify it when we've been the scripture says we've been crucified with christ therefore i no longer live jesus christ now lives in me and so the evil that was in my heart was killed in such a way that it no longer exercises control over my life uh, there is no more stain before God of my sin. I've been clothed with Christ's righteousness. And guess what? The the propensity for sin that I still have, Rafe, I, it's incumbent on me to slay that sin. And 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 that is very much in line with what Peterson I should be saying here. I think he he wants to say 
to give him the benefit of the doubt, which is this. I take the sword of the spirit first to my own sin, as Jesus put it. I take the plank out of my own eye before I address the the uh, the moat, you know, the speck in your eye. Um, I I wage war against my own sin. I become very dangerous to my own sin, and then that uh, the Bible says, "Let judgment begin with the house of God." Okay, so I turn inward on my sin first, eradicating it, and from there I've got a platform to go out into the world and to wage war on evil in the world. Not, by the way, in a way that makes me the fi final arbiter or judge of people in the world, because Paul expressly says we shouldn't be doing that. But, but by bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ, by bringing the teaching of Jesus Christ out into the world, by wielding my sword, as Hebrews uh, calls God's word a sword, I go out into the world as one who says, look, I'm a sinner saved by grace, and I offer you the same grace, and I have clear moral categories because I've been working on my own sin and my own immorality for the last so and you know so and so many years, and 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 I'm going to approach the world with very clear categories. I'm going to call sin what it is, and I'm going to know when to say no. I'm not going to uh, compromise with sin, and that is going to make me very dangerous to the world and the world system, just as God's word has been very dangerous to my own sin and my own heart, my own life. Right. And it makes you a disruptor. Okay, let's pause here for a second before we go any further, because um, I want to I make sure we get to something very practical here for a moment. It's all fine and good to talk about the hoorah of uh, being full of courage. And I think, you know, yeah. anybody, uh, I think we're made for that. Uh, honestly, I think, uh, I think every Christian is made for that. I, I think particularly, and I, I, I don't mean to cut women out of this, I think men have a unique role in this to play as the, uh, the warriors, uh, so to speak. But women also, uh, men and women, uh, participate in that role. But men, I, d I always want to call our men up to pick up the mantle of warrior again. Uh, and it's one that we've lost. We've tamed masculinity and, t and stripped all the courage out of it. Um, let, me, let me actually read this to you real quick, just because it, it was such a good quote. I was going over this yesterday. Oh. Uh, it's, uh, it's Doug Wilson, uh, his book that he wrote on, on men masculinity basically yeah, raising boys he says they have a lot to say he's quoting from a c.s lewis book he says uh when they teach when they teach boys in school they had a lot to say about exports and imports and governments and drains but they were very weak on dragons and then he goes on uh he says uh uh yeah he goes he goes on in contrast we've reduced the gospel to four basic steps towards personal happiness and we are much further from the truth than our fathers were when they told their glorious stories. This is another way of saying that dragon lore is truer than therapy speak. And and, and, and this whole chapter, the, the idea that he's getting after there is that there is something hardwired into the, the soul and the fabric of man, of men specifically, but I would also say of followers of Christ, which we know inherently that just playing it safe and cowering beneath secular demands on our life is not what we were made for. And that there is a, there is a much greater joy in life standing strong on the word of God and against the word of secular society. And, uh, and I want to call our people to that. I want to live that myself. I don't just want to be a voice saying that. I actually want to live it. So my question to you, Joel, is give us maybe, you know, what come, what's one of the first places you think of when you think of this in reality, day-to-day -day life, regular person living their life wherever they are right now, a follower of Christ, maybe in Chicago or wherever they're listening right now, what does this mean for them? 
First thing I think of Rafe is one of our most, uh, one of the most in, okay, let's think of it this way. One of the most um, strategic moves that we can make right now as everyday Christians is to attack the invisible wall of uh, societal peacekeeping. The, the wall that says you don't talk to your neighbor about spiritual matters or matters that could be controversial. Now, as Christians, we oftentimes, I'm not going to say everybody, some people go too far in the other direction, but generally speaking, never you or me, Rafe, but you know, others, um, we don't like to strike up conversations that could get awkward. Now, our counterparts in the world don't often have that reservation. How many times will someone, whether it's a coworker or a uh, family member or a member of the extended family, make a, a, a loud remark about something that violates your Christian conscience, even if it's just you know swearing and and uh, using profanity or, or make- that, wait wait and just I'm gonna I want to I want you to keep going, but think about this. Think about how every day we um unbom- we are bombarded with news articles, magazines, images on, on, on YouTube, you name where you're seeing it, of the most outrageous yeah. moral declarations yeah. that 10 years ago, nobody would have said this is scientifically a thing or, you know, I'm just thinking of the amount of transgender uh, commercials yeah. I have seen come into my home through trying to watch an episode of Seinfeld last week. Bro, they've Starbucks has a bearded man in a dress that looks like a dress. I mean, I don't I guess I'm not too up on my female fashion, but this looks like something that like here's, middle school girls would have worn, you know, 20 years ago. Here's my point. Here's my point. The point is not that that secular society has gone off the rails. The point is they have no shame whatsoever That's in what, yes, right. their moral certitudes to everybody, whether or not you want to believe it or not, which by the way, majority yes. of people don't. Rafe, this this is that thank you for saying that. The point is is not, wow, look how crazy the world is. Guys, what do you expect? Right. You've got according to the according to scripture, when Adam sinned, he died. According to you know, good, solid biblical theology, spiritually, his descendants have been born and conceived into this world dead ever since. You right. got a bunch of corpses running around. What do you expect? They're going to act, you know, corpse is going to corpse. So <laughs> we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, expect anything different. The point though, the point, and I think- You I think, made it up on the spot or was that, what, did you have that one in the- in No, the- no, no, no. I, that, that's just flowing, man. It's okay, flowing. Good. You're good. He goes, he goes, uh, look, 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 the, the fact is, we are not as bold as the world is with our standard. We've been catechized by the world that says this, only one perspective gets to be loud and out there. Only one perspective gets to have parades. Only one perspective gets to morally denounce the other side. Now, Rafe, my point is not that we should be out morally denouncing everybody. Okay, let judgment begin with the house of God. My point, though, is that as Christians, we need to be meek in the biblical sense, which, by the way, we have to talk about. We need to study the tactics of our opponents, which, by the way, we have to talk about. We need to figure out at certain times in history, look, boldness is going to look different. Right now, there is a premium that society gives you when you are willing to speak boldly from a place of moral conviction. And right now, 
the world is holding all the chips. The world is holding all the cards. So what I'm what I'm trying to say here, Rafe, is this. The very first barrier that we need to realize that we're up against is the barrier of social respectability. We the world does not care about social respectability the way that we do. We're still operating by society's old rules that say never talk about politics or religion. Look, those rules are gone. No one cares about those rules anymore. Right. We are now free to talk about religion and politics from a biblical perspective. We can do that. So I just want to I just want to just say to to Christians who are watching and listening, you don't have to play by the old rules. You are free to talk about religion. You're free to talk about Jesus. You are I'm not saying go out there and smack people in the face with the Bible, but I am saying eschew social respectability. Don't be a jerk. Don't be abrasive strictly for the, some of you love to be abrasive. You need to crucify that as well. That can be sinful as well. You all stop but, talking to yourself. Uh, what, do you, what do you think? The <laughs> judgment begin with the I'm house with of you. God. I'm with you. But we, we've got to realize that that is a gate of Hades that will not mm -hmm. stand. And we need but to charge also, that gate look, first. Also, look, clarity is, it can be a very, it can be a great virtue. And, and one of the things we do is we water down our message to such a degree that there's nothing insulting about it. But the gospel is divisive. You know, John Knox, bringing up John Knox again, one of his favorite terms was a sin he used to call, and he was particularly referencing the Catholic Church of his day uh, in Scotland, but he, he used to call it a synagogue of Satan. And if you read John Knox's writings over and over again, he doesn't mince words. He, he's attacking particular theological points, and he's saying, so long as you hold to that, you are nothing more than a synagogue of Satan. Now, here's my point. We have there is a great, a great thing to be had in being very clear with what you're trying to say. If you're afraid to say the clarity of what needs to be said, then what, what we're doing is we're, we're borrowing once again from this false worldview that's infiltrated the church, which says the church just needs to be quiet, do their thing quietly in church on Sunday morning, live quiet, peaceful lives, and don't disturb the peace. By the way, the peace that is going to hell. Right? The biblical worldview is that if you don't know Jesus Christ, there's an eternity apart from Christ. And so think about what you're doing. If you say, I don't want to disrupt the peace, I want you to be able to do whatever you want. Go, go on, and I won't stop you. I, I'm more than happy for you to go on living that lifestyle, doing whatever you're going to go doing, doing, and go to a Christless eternity. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to gather in my holy huddle, keep my head quiet, and not disrupt anything. That, you're not going to find that in the Bible. The apostles and every disciple was always going out. They were planting churches. They were having spiritual conversation. They were being thrown in jail. This is what God's people have always done, and that's the only way to change culture. And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, what I just want to say is clarity is a, is a beautiful and good thing. And I think Jordan Peterson, Jordan Peterson does a great job. When, when he rebukes or rebuts an idea, it's clear. Yeah. It, and it's not... And he does it with such a way of grace about him in the sense of like, he's not trying to tear the other person down and make them feel like a terrible person. It's just, look, let's have a, con let's have a conversation about an idea. You're here and I'm here. Now, now we can start an actual conversation of who's right. Yeah. And, and so practically speaking, we need to identify those areas in our lives where we have fallen prey to this idea and capitulated to the world's diktat, which says, 
if you are a believer, if you are, if you actually believe that crazy stuff in the Bible, you may not speak publicly about it. You can keep it, it you can keep it to, uh, stick, stick with the Frank Bruni triad. Frank, the Frank Bruni triad comes, I just coined that phrase. Okay. But that comes from an article that it's an opinion piece in the New York times from January 10th, 2015. Let me, let me show this to you. I'm just, there's one phrase I want to pull out here. Okay. You know what? I, I can't because I'm sharing the other video, but uh, you can look it up. It's, it's an opinion piece called your God and my dignity. It's by Frank Bruni. Here's what he says. I respect people of faith. I salute the extraordinary works of compassion and social justice that many of them and many of their churches do. I acknowledge that we in the news media, because we tend to emphasize conflict and wrongdoing and hypocrisy, sometimes focus more on the shortcomings of religious institutions than on their positive contributions. And I respect the right of people to believe what they do and say what they wish in their pews, hearts, and homes. In their pews, homes, and hearts. But outside of those places, you must put up with me just as I put up with you. Rafe, the idea of putting up with someone, all well and good. But I want to take it further because Frank Bruni, he goes way too far. He's like N.T. Wright riding off in his horse in two separate directions. You've got, on the one hand, Frank Bruni, you don't get to restrict our free exercise of religion to our pews, hearts, right. and homes. That's one. And two, Frank Bruni, we're not interested in putting up with you. Well, well, think about what he just said, though, too. Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. I got to finish that thought. He created gonna... his own doctrine and is now declaring to us in the public sphere what we have to do. Sorry, That's go right. ahead. Look, it's not about putting – you're absolutely right about that, Rafe. But it's also not, not about putting up. I don't want to put up with Frank Bruni. Frank Bruni is a fellow image bearer of my God. Right. We we have we we are descended from the same common ancestor in Adam. We're both uh, in Adam. We've we've both fallen, and the the only hope for Frank Bruni or for me is in Jesus Christ. I don't want to just show bare tolerance towards Frank Bruni. I want to show radical love toward Frank Bruni, and I want to see Frank Bruni enjoy the peace and the hope. And the certitude that comes from knowing God in a personal way, which can only be found in Jesus Christ. I want Frank Bruni's sins to be forgiven. Now, now that is a proposition of radical love, and it's an offer of radical love. But here's the thing, to Frank Bruni and to others in the world who don't believe, that is going to sound very dangerous. It's going to sound very foolish. It's going to sound like I want to impose my morality on him. But Rafe, like you said, what exactly is Frank Bruni doing in that opinion piece? Is he not trying to impose his own doctrine, his own morality on me? Frank Bruni is trying to be a worldly version of a dangerous man. Because, I because if his doc, if the Bruni doctrine, the Bruni triad is is played out to its logical conclusion, then you and I are restricted to the private, the the the, the private world of our pews, homes, and hearts. But that's but Jesus is Lord of all, right. so his doctrine is very dangerous to the free exercise of religion. And guess what? The gospel is very dangerous to the sin and the 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 self directed autonomy of Frank Bruni and of Joel Sedeckes. And it right. doesn't leave us alone. Right. 
and and so that's a dangerous idea and we need to go out to the frank brunies of the world to the co-workers and the family members and the friends and the neighbors of the world that we encounter with that dangerous mentality because guess what the world is already there yeah no that's good yeah i, I love i love seeing the uh, irony in statements like that where he wants he's got one set of doctrines for himself and another for everybody else yeah. you keep your ideas quiet to yourself me yeah. i'll broadcast them and tell you how you ought to think it's written in the new york times man he's not exactly keeping it to himself yeah exactly right. he, he's evangelizing his worldview but yeah. he, we're not allowed to evangelize our worldview that's not the case everyone's always evangelizing what they believe to be true yeah um, because you believe it to be true and silence can be a form of evangelization as well because it's a way of saying uh uh my my views are not the kind of views that people need to hear about or take seriously right that's a statement silence can be a statement Right. You know, you, you know, I want to say something that I think is important. One of the things that's most shaped me, you know, when we have when we do shows like this, when I talk about spiritual courage, I talk I speak about conviction and, and spiritual cowardice. And I, I think um, a lot of people wonder, where do I start? Where do I begin? Like you can feel this, you can resonate with this and you can read in the scriptures. Right. We're all supposed to have uh, spiritual courage and conviction and the, the willingness to suffer publicly for our faith. But where do you begin? And I, I can just tell you this. I have been shaped so much by men uh, who have exemplified this for me. You, you have to be following somebody who is modeling what this looks like for you. Everybody needs that. Um, you know, that's why Paul said, you know, follow me as I follow Christ. Make disciples of men who will make disciples of men. Um, and the idea is, th this is this is best learned on the field. You can, you can fill your mind with this, and we can be listening to podcasts all day. You know, there's an old movie. Uh, it, I saw this movie a long time ago. Uh, somewhat inappropriate film. Not necessarily recommending this film. It's been many years. But it's called Monty Python and the Life of Brian, I think. Hysterical, there, there's a lot of hysterical stuff. Monty Python, they were, they were their thing. And they were very anti-Christian. You know, those guys all really were anti-Christian. But the, the Life of Brian, it follows the, the, the guy who was born in the manger next to Jesus. Okay. And, and towards the end of the movie, there's this, there's this classic scene where Brian is about to get crucified and his buddies are sitting on a park bench debating all the heroic stuff they're going to do. They're sitting there on this park bench and they're debating, oh, and then we're going to go and then we're going to rescue him. And then, and then you're going to go here and you're going to go here. And all right, and then you're going to say what to the king? Okay, good. Meanwhile, hours are going by and everything's happening around them. Mm. Literally, Brian's dying on the crucifix. All their friends have just been arrested. And, and all they're doing is sitting there on a park bench talking about their heroism, of what they're going to do and never taking a step. Right. And, and that is, if there's ever social commentary, that's it. What Christians need to do is take a step of faith. And the best way to do that is to follow someone who's a little bit further ahead of you. Yeah. If you know someone in your church, that's the place to do it, is in your local church. Partner, speak to your pastor. Say, I want to have courage formed in me and go out evangelizing with your pastor. And if your pastor's not evangelizing, ask him what he's doing with his time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. say, like, like have him have him take you out to the dark, dangerous places. Have him take you out to the difficult conversation and just learn from him and watch him. Because what happens to me is when I'm in that situation, I grow. And I need someone to take me out a little further than what I'm comfortable with. Um, and so that's my recommendation to you. It, it, it's more than listening to podcasts. Yeah. Otherwise, you sit on a park bench while the world passes you by, and you'll be an old man and end up just saying, well, we'll let some other young guy go do it. Yeah, that's good. You know what else you could do is pray for opportunities to share your faith. 
Yeah. Pray for, uh, pray, pray for three opportunities this week to share the gospel with someone or to have a spiritual conversation with someone and, and, and then go out and look for those opportunities. Why? Because now you're putting into practice what we've been talking about. It's a dangerous thing. Look, if it wasn't dangerous, people would be doing it all the time. Right. We know that it's dangerous. You don't, there's, there's no question. And there's a reason why the Frank Brunies of the world want to want Christians to stay in their little ideological ghettos of the pews, hearts, and homes. It's because it's a dangerous message. It's the, it's, it's the same reason why the Chinese government requires churches to pay homage to the, uh, the, you know, President Xi and sing the national anthem before they can be reinstated after coronavirus lockdowns. It's the same reason why Christians in North Korea are placed into gulags and concentration camps for three generations. It's because the gospel is a dangerous message. It's the same reason why Christians were lit on fire to light the garden of, uh, of Nero. Nero. And it's the same reason why Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot went and uh, sent police officers to storm churches during the first lockdowns back in the spring. It's because the gospel is a dangerous message. It's because the church is dangerous. Christians, this is our birthright, our spiritual birthright. You've been baptized into Christ and Christ flipped tables. It doesn't mean we have zeal without knowledge again. so, So here's where we need to talk about meekness. Jordan Peterson goes on to talk about the idea of meekness in the video. But Rafe, can you give us a biblical definition? Because Jesus says that the meek shall inherit the earth. So what I want to do is two things. I want to talk very briefly about a definition of meekness. And then I want to talk about should we learn to think like our enemies? And then I've got a comment from a, a viewer that I want to share. And then I, and I think we can wrap up in the next you know five minutes or so. Yeah. Uh, so I preached, I preached a message this summer on, uh, on that passage on, uh, out of the Sermon on the Mount. And the definition, uh, I'm going to give you like a real formal definition and then a, a more practical way to work this out. So uh, in that message, I said something like this. The, the, a definition of meekness might be something like this. Meekness means to not be overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance, to be gentle, humble, and considerate. Let me read that again. Meekness means to not be overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Now, here's what uh, is, is really incredible. Uh, meekness is not weakness when, when you've found your identity in the Lord. It, it's the opposite. When a person has found their identity in the Lord, they're fueled with a strength that basically says you no longer need to prove yourself. You no longer need to win every argument. You no longer need to be the strongest. You know, there, There's nothing left to prove. Your identity is fully wrapped up in who Jesus Christ says you are. Whether your life is hidden from all public view and the Lord uses you in invisible ways that no one will ever know, or whether he calls you the highest echelons of public debate, neither of those things has a greater or lesser identity because both of those people, if they're submitted to Christ, are fully confident in who they are. With that as a backbone and as an anchor of the Christian identity, knowing who you are in Christ, you basically become the most dangerous person. Because now you've got nothing to lose. You have absolutely nothing to lose. And you've got no one to impress. And what is left is a, is a sense of meekness of giving your life away rather than trying to hoard life for yourself. So, how, so that's my definition. Now, practically what that means is when you have an identity that's so wrapped up in Christ, you can be and likely will be the meekest people. Think of Jesus Christ. 
or Moses, who's described described in the Old Testament as very meek, very humble, right? Yeah. These guys <laughs> were dangerous men. Jesus mm-hmm. is not uh, th- this, you know, little quiet, never, never, you know, he changed the he, he he changed the world more than any human being that ever lived, ever. And so there's a danger to him. But what is that danger out of? It's not having to prove yourself in the eyes of man. And, and what Jordan Peterson says in the rest of that video, he describes meekness this way. He says, it's having a sword, being able to use it, but keeping it sheathed. Yeah. And that's exactly what I just said. It's being strong, knowing exactly who you are, but not feeling like you got to use it at every turn, but using it appropriately. That's who Jesus says will inherit the earth. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So check this out. So in 2 Corinthians 10, You've got the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to a church in Corinth that had accused him of walking according to the flesh. In other words, there's a whole backstory, but um, they're they're accusing the Apostle Paul of not following Jesus very closely. Listen to what he says. He goes, now I, Paul, myself, appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble among you in person, but bold toward you when absent. I beg you that when I am present, I will not need to be bold with the confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people who think we are living according to the flesh. All right. He goes on to make his appeal. But Rafe, here you've got Paul who is appealing to the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. And he's saying, I, I'm, I'm begging you. I'm asking you. Remember how meek Christ was. I want to be like Christ here. But if you persist then the fury I'm going to rain down on these people over here who are accusing me of walking according to the flesh, I'm going to have to turn those exact same cannons on you. So I can be meek, people, but I want you to understand my meekness is not to be confused with with weakness. I will turn those cannons on you if you don't do what I ask. And I'm asking you gently, but my gentleness is backed up with teeth. Right. Okay? I'm not some toothless little, you know, Weak right. uh, jellyfish coming at you. Uh, uh, th- th- this is a there's a dragon that's asking you to please comply, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be as gentle as a bunny towards you. But if <laughs> if you cross me, you know what I'm going to do to these people. Uh-huh. I don't want to. I don't want to turn my fire breathing dragonness on you. I'm gonna. I'm already going to turn it on them. But I want to be meek towards you. That is meekness. That's keeping the sword in its sheath, but it's still a sword. That's saying no. And meaning it and saying, don't ask me again. You're not going to like it if I have to say no again. Right. No, that's a good word, Joel. That's very good. All right. Man, I'm liking this episode. This was good. This was a good conversation today. Rafe, one last question. Do Christians need to learn how to think like the enemy in order to wage war against them? I know we're almost out of time. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think uh, biblically here before I give you an answer off the top of my head. Um, when you say think like the enemy, I think there's a danger there. This is where my immediate mind goes. Um, the, the weapons of our, uh, war, our warfare are not carnal, right? We're, we're not using the enemy's tactics to beat the enemy. Um, we, we don't, we don't play his game. We don't, we don't use sin as, as a means to our ends, which is why, you know, in the last round of protests that turned violent and riots, you know, any Christian who is saying this is a Christian way of behavior and this is a good appropriate response, it's not the case. That's the devil's tactics and we don't play that game. Right. Um, 
is it good to know his tactics and to, to think like the enemy? Well, to the degree that the Bible informs us of what the enemy does, then I think that there's an appropriateness to know the word of God. And we know quite a bit about how the enemy works, right? From the book of Daniel, we know that uh, demons uh, operate uh, geographically, that they're over geographic spaces. Uh, we know how they work, that they tempt. We know that they deceive. They, we know that they accuse. We can go through a lot of scripture and, and really, by the word of God, know the basic principles of how the enemy works. And it's very good to be aware of that, uh, but not to necessarily use it in order to, to use his tactics against him. We always wrestle uh, with and fight with the Lord's tools that he's given us, particularly in Ephesians 6, uh, with the, the, the spiritual war armor that he's given us. I don't know, what are your thoughts? No, that's a good word, man. Uh, I think of 2 Samuel chapter 10. Here you've got a, a situation in which um, there's, again, great story. Go back and read it and find out what happened. But here you've got a situation where Joab, who was David's general and also his nephew, by the way, is leading his army out with, uh, uh, he's, he's fighting against the Arameans, and the Ammonites, the Aramaeans and the Ammonites were two other people living in that that area back then, and uh, they were fighting uh, together against Israel. So Joab and his brother Abishai, uh, they get out on the battlefield and they look and they do a survey and they 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 look around to see what's going on, and they realize that the Aramaeans and the um, Ammonites have set up their battle lines on one side in front of the Israelites, and then on the other side, behind the Israelites. And Joab and Abishai come up with a war strategy based, uh, it would be a two-pronged war strategy, and if Joab was being overwhelmed, then Abishai would come help him, and vice versa. Now, why do I bring that up? Here's why. Because they got out to the battle. First of all, they didn't deny they were in a battle. Okay, they went out, they, they didn't try to hide. They went out and they saw what was going on, and they realized what the tactic was of their enemies. And they adapted accordingly, and God gave them victory. Now, can you imagine if they had gone out and they said, they said, you know what? We're just going to blindly trust God here. Let's just fight randomly, and we'll just kind of see what happens. Well, their their rear would have been completely destroyed, in, in figuratively and literally. They would have had their rears handed to them. All right? <laughs> so, so what they did was they saw the two-pronged approach of the enemy, and they came up with a two-pronged defense. That is very different than adopting the sinful ideology of the world. That would be wrong. You don't fight fire with fire, as common as that expression is, because guess what? You get more fire, okay? But you do need to know where the fire is blazing, or to put it, you know, adapt that to however, you know, Doug Wilson would say it, start fires in strategic areas, right? But you got to know where the strategic points are. That kind of knowing how your enemy is thinking is wise and good. And we ought to be able to get to the point, Rafe, I would say, where we know where the enemy is going to strike next. In order to do that, we do, to a certain degree, need to be able to think like the enemy. Rafe, uh, uh, one of the things that I'm doing right now to become more offensive in a godly way is I'm pursuing more debates. So I I did a couple of debates um, in the last year. I did like uh, three debates. One of them was kind of more of a conversation, but I'm going to be doing another one in January. And I would be a complete idiot more than I already am if I were to go and just enter into this debate blindly and go, oh, you know, I'll just kind of wing it and kind of hope I know what he's going to say. No, that's right. really, I'm going, I'm going on YouTube and I'm watching hours of this guy's content to figure right. out what his arguments are going to be. 
and 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 maybe he'll listen to this maybe he'll watch this video i don't know um but i'd be a complete idiot if i didn't know what my opponent was going to say ahead of time i want to be able to think like him and think and anticipate what he's going to say next so that i can represent my lord well right and and if i don't that's not on jesus that's on me so yeah, yeah I, I think, uh, let me read a quick quote. If I could go on one more second here, I want to read a quick quote. This is from Brandon Raby, who who um, uh, engaged with me a little bit on Facebook. I thought this was a great point. He says this, he says, we cannot fight if we don't know who the enemy is, what they believe, or what the root of the issue is. This is, this by necessity means we must have at least a grasp of these wicked things. Yeah. But, and you know, the classic example, Joel, we'll, and uh, I think I'm understanding the question you're asking a bit better now. The The classic example of this is Paul in Athens. And, and just to just to say real clearly again, Paul goes through Athens and Paul does not walk around Athens like like this. Like, I can't look at that sinful thing. I can't look at that sinful thing. Right. Like any any refute. Rather, what he does is he's examining the landscape and studying it and learning and listening and, and being a student of the culture around him in order to demonstrate why their cultural worldview is completely broken. He says, look, your worldview, you, 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 don't even, you have an unknown God. You, they're, they're, you're literally proclaiming as a basis of your worldview that you might have a God that you're worshiping that's completely contradictory to everything else you're saying is true. That's an inconsistent, incoherent worldview. Rather, let me tell you about the Christian God, the one triune God. And so in a sense, it's exactly what you're saying. Paul went into Athens with his eyes open, studying the culture around him, listening, found the most pivotal strategic place to go have a conversation, and then disrupted the norms by proclaiming that everything they believed to be true is wrong and proclaiming the one true God. And some rejected him, but what happened? Some listened. Some listened. And came back and wanted to have more conversation with him. Yeah. And so, and that's exactly what we're to do. So it, it, the quick answer to your question, now that I better understand it, is uh, is absolutely, we have to know our enemy and what they're saying and believing and be able to kind of take their, their arguments down. And frankly, if I could just say this, a lot of folks are afraid to do that, thinking they're not intelligent enough to think about those ideas. These are not that, mo honestly, I, I do a lot of evangelism. Most people I'm engaging with have not thought, thought through their own worldview. And literally, it's as simple as just, just why do, you, why do you believe that? Like, and then they scratch their head. Mo most times, sometimes you come across a real smart person, and you got to be, you, gotta, you it's, it's helpful to be ready. But most times, when you're doing evangelism, most people have not thought about their own worldview and the implications of what they're saying they believe. And usually, they end up changing their mind ten times in the course of an evangelistic encounter, while you're the whole time standing on the word of God saying right. no. So, so yes, I'm with you. Yeah, that's good. Real quick word here from YouTube user Alive with Christ. This person says, thanks for the stream. Very good. And I've been dealing with the same thing, trying to become more zealous and bold. Glad it was helpful, Alive with Christ. Um, uh, this person also said earlier that we need to be fasting and asking God for wisdom and supernatural help in everything. Hard Amen. to argue with that. Hard to argue with that. All right, good. Rafe. Pleasure as always, my friend. Oh yeah, we need to get together in person here, man. There's um, I don't know what things are like in Chicago. Actually, I have a pretty good hunch, but um, there's there's at least one place out here that is wide open, and um, there's freedom. There's there's a there's a there's a modicum of freedom out where I'm at now, Rafe. So well, uh, I, I'm actually supposed to have a date night tonight, so I'm trying to figure out if there's any restaurants where we can go out. So I I don't know if there is, but I'm gonna I'm gonna 
start looking actually. In well, good man, good man. And um, uh, listen, if you want to get more great content from Pastor Rafe, you got to listen to the Christian Optimist podcast. It's it's mandatory listening. All right. If you're listening to this, you got to listen to it. Go to rafechenery.com slash podcast. And um, that's C-H-E-N-E-R-Y for Chenery. And uh, look, let me let me also um, just do a quick plug for the uh, for our organization. If you want to partner with the Think Institute and the Seta Case family, you can go to give.crew.org slash 1018841. Crew has no central repository of funds to pay missionaries and, and staff. The Think Institute is a crew ministry, a non-woke crew ministry. And so we rely on the support, financial and prayer support of like-minded individuals and churches. Go to that web address. Uh, that's our giving link. Partner with us there. We've had some people who are listeners of the show partner with us. I can't even tell you how much I appreciate that. It means that the content is blessing you. It means that you are learning from and um, appreciating what, what we're doing with the Think Institute. So thank you. Send any inquiries to thethink.institute at gmail.com. And that's, I don't know, Rafe, that's about, that about does it, I think, for us today, don't you think? I think we're good. Thanks, Joel. Hope you heard something helpful. I know I certainly did. Remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the road of your spiritual journey. Until next time, I hope it made you think.